Um, we are at 1 Corinthians 11, and we're going to start in verse 17. And we're going to read all the way to verse 34. 17 to 34 of 1 Corinthians 11. And it's on the Lord's Supper. And as you see, we're having an extra Lord's Supper this month as a practical application of the sermon. Let's stand together for the reading of God's powerful, authoritative word. Hear God's word to you this morning. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat the bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. Originally, of course, this is part of a, a larger series of the means of grace. And we talked about being devoted um, like they did in the early church. Acts chapter 2, remember, verse 42. After 3,000 of them got saved, they devoted themselves what? To the apostles' teaching, to the word, right? To the fellowship, that is the church, the gathering of the people of God. Then what? To the breaking of bread, which we're going to be talking about now, which is the Lord's Supper. And then lastly, to what? To prayer. So we've dealt with the other three this morning. We're taking uh, the big one, the Lord's Supper, together. Um, and I figured where else but to start than the great passage where Paul expounds it in the most detail that we have in the New Testament. But um, fortunately and unfortunately, 
it was, he had to address it because it was a literal zoo at Corinth. So it's because of their crazy zaniness that we get all these details that we wouldn't have had otherwise in the New Testament. So it just shows you that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So what we're going to see this morning, I'm going to get right to it. Every minute's going to count on this one. We're going to see that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, so this is important for us to see, a very practical thing. When we partake of this supper together, the supper of the Lord, we're to consider four things. It's important to see this. There are four things we're to consider. The first thing we're, we're to consider, and this was the big wow for me, we are to consider Christ's people. Another way of saying that is Christ's body. Not his physical body, but his spiritual body. That means one another. The second thing we are to consider is Christ's words. In other words, the words of institution. That's what Paul brings up. Exactly what Jesus handed down to him to hand down to us. Thirdly, we are to con consider Christ's physical body. It gets confusing when you say body, body. But one's spiritual, the other one's physical. It's his flesh and his blood. And the fourth thing that we are to consider, and um, this is almost surprising, it's Christ's judgment. At the end of the passage, we hear a lot about God's judgment, and we'll talk about that. So those are four things that we should be considering before we partake of this holy, powerful meal that Christ gave us. So let's take a look at the first one, and this is definitely the longest one point, and it's interwoven throughout all of the points. Uh, you can't get away from it because that's what Paul is dealing with here. So the first one is we need to consider each other in the body of Christ. So the situation with the ancient congregation of Corinth was, was pretty bizarro, to say the least. I want you to just get a picture of this church, and I have to be quick about this. By all means, go and read the whole epistle on your own uh, this, this afternoon before you take your nap. It'll be good for you to do that, but I'm going to give you just a quick summary. First of all, they were fighting like little children about which church leader was the best. One was like, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. And then there was the spiritual one, I follow Christ. And, and Paul's like, seriously, what are we in kindergarten? Right? It's all, all of Paul, Paul, Apollos, Christ. It's all yours in Jesus. Amen. The heck is wrong with you? Sorry, that was me. Amen. But another thing they were doing, and, and this is the, we see this out of all the other epistles. You don't ever see this. They were denying the resurrection of the dead. That's the heart of the gospel. And Paul had to correct him and say, hey, think about this for a minute, guys. If the dead aren't raised, that means Jesus didn't raise. You can see him going, huh? I almost think of like a Monty Python that we're all going, oh, mm -hmm. like really? Really is crazy. Others were abusing the spiritual gifts. So they especially had supernatural gifts, and they were, used, they were out of control. Um, and so Paul had to rebuke them and say, hey, the greatest of all gifts is what? Love. You know, you can have, you can speak the, with tongues of angels. If you don't have love, what? You're nothing. You're like a, 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 a banging gong, right? And then, just to, to maybe give you a little icing on the cake to see how bad it really was, they were tolerating a form of sexual sin that even the world frowned upon. Even the world said, whoa, that's nasty. And not only were the Corinthians not disciplining the guy who did this awful thing, they were praising him. And unfortunately, when it comes to partaking of the Holy Supper of the Lord, they didn't fare any better. 
He had to take him to task for this as well. The practice of having the Lord's Supper was so off the mark of what it originally was intended to be that the Apostle Paul had to say this to him in verse 20. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. You know it's pretty rough when the Apostle Paul has to say, I don't know what meal you're sharing together, but it ain't the Lord's Supper. I don't know what that mess is, but it ain't the Lord's Supper. I mean, you don't often hear Paul talk like that, as strong as he is. That was pretty strong. In other words, compared to the practice of partaking of the Lord's Supper that Jesus himself instituted, and that every other church of Jesus Christ practiced, what Paul saw or heard of was unrecognizable. He was like, I don't even know what that is, what you're doing. So Paul gives the following reasons for these. Now, these comments are really strong, so we have to figure out, why would Paul be, wow, that's scathing. This is why. He says, as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry, and another one gets drunk. So I want to make something clear so you understand it. In, in the early church, they began to have a larger, what we call agape meal, love meal. And then in the middle of that meal, they would also have the Lord's Supper. So in other words, it's kind of be like what we do now. We have potluck supper. But they were kind of mixing that with the Lord's Supper. And so what, what you had here is they took the Holy Supper of the Lord, which was instituted to commune with the Lord's physical body and blood, and his spiritual body, the church, into a meal. They turned it into a meal which promoted selfish indulgence and humiliating division in the church that, listen, this is important, in the church that Jesus bought with his own blood. So I want you to see what they were doing. They were humiliating the poor brothers among them because they were greedily chowing down and drinking up, and then when the poor brother went to the table, there was nothing left. And that's why Paul says, don't you have food at home? That you have to humiliate those whom Jesus bought with his own blood? And I think there's, a, Dick Lucas said something, and um, Paul's going to bring this up, but I, I, I think he puts it really well. This is what he says. He's speaking about when he comes to the Lord's Supper. When I come to the company of Christian people, and I'm glad he said this because I can't say it, I see Mr. and Mrs. Jones and their tiresome children around me. And I think to myself, they can't really be very important or very valuable. When I'm at the Lord's table, I'm reminded of their value. If they're Christians living together in the Christian church, what's their value? Their value is the blood of Christ. That is the value that Jesus, that God, puts on his church on earth. This company of very ordinary people who have met together at this table to celebrate the redemption and to preach the gospel till Jesus returns. That's the value of it. And so you have to understand how serious of a heinous of a sin this is. It's to devalue those that Jesus bought with his own blood. So the Corinthians' chief sin here, and I think this is where my aha came, was failing to consider the spiritual body of Christ. That's the fellowship of the saints. By 
failing to consider one another, put another, one another above themselves, to wait and to make sure that everyone was served before they chowed down, Paul says, in effect, that they were despising. That's the word he says. Do you despise the church of God? And humiliate your poor brothers and sisters. What became very clear to me is that communion is more of a corporate event than an individual thing. In other words, it's about communing with Christ's physical body and blood, of course, but also Christ's spiritual body, the church. So often we make it into a personal thing, only. When we talk about examining ourselves, what do we do? We think about our personal sins. And let me tell you something, we certainly should do that, right? I mean, if we're living like the devil all week and then we come to church and all of a sudden put the halo on, that's obviously we need, to, we need to examine ourselves, right? If our lives have nothing to do with walking with Jesus out there and then all of a sudden in here we want to be walking with Jesus, that's when we need to get right. Amen. Something ain't right. But the emphasis here is not that. The emphasis here is are you right with your brother and sister in Christ? And are you treating them with love, respect, kindness. Now, for us today, okay, so for us today, this is important to know. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we don't do so part as part of a larger feast, nor do we use real wine. So we kind of cut out the gluttony and the drunkenness right away. You get one little tiny cup, right? And you get a little cracker, unleavened bread. So we're not really going to have to worry too much about being guilty of that here when we partake of the Lord's Supper. But what we can still learn from this, and this is where its application in Corinth is obviously a little different than its application in Atlantic City here. We can still learn from this is that when we participate in the body and blood of Jesus together, we must consider the communion of the saints. In other words, we have to be considering our relationships one with another. As we come to the common table, we are the common loaf common body of Christ. We need to consider how we're treating one another, whether or not we're acting lovingly, patiently, or graciously with one another. Otherwise, whatever we're partaking of, it's not the Lord's Supper, not the one who died and gave himself for us so that we would become one family of God, so that we would show to the world that he is the real Messiah, so that people would say how they love one another. This Jesus is real. It's the supper of the one who died to make us one body. He made up of rich and poor, male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, you name it. There's an old illustration, but I love telling it. As, as old as it is, I don't usually tell many illustrations about the Duke of Wellington, but I'm going to this time. Duke of Wellington was is obviously a high person of high society, high ranking, and he came into an Anglican church in his day, and he went to have the Lord's Supper. They would come forward in those day, days, and he went to, have, to kneel down to have the Lord's Supper, and a poor man came and sat across from him. And the usher really quick grabbed the poor man and was telling him basically to get up and wait until the wealthy man was served. And the Duke grabbed the shoulder of the poor man and sat him back down with respect where the respectful tone said to him, we are all equal here, brother. Amen. 
That was the chief sin that Paul was addressing in Corinth. We need to be considering the body of Christ, Christ's body, the church. The second thing we need to consider is Christ's word. So Paul says, okay, uh, let's go back to A, B, C, D, E, F, G. All right, let's go back to the beginning. He says, for I, what I received from the Lord is also what I passed on to you. What I want to point out about that is this. Paul is saying, I only passed on to you exactly what Jesus passed on to me. To put it another way, it's no mere human instituted this supper. The Son of God, who's both God and man, is the one who instituted this supper. The apostles didn't. No church elders didn't. No one else did. Just Jesus. And some traditions in the church, and I'll tell you, you know, being a pastor for a number of years, um, it, it can get trying and taxing when, when people get stuck in traditionalism. And some traditions definitely outlive their usefulness, and it's time to put them to bed. Can I get an amen? amen. This is not one of them. This is one tradition that we stick to exactly how Jesus instituted it until the day he comes back. We don't invent it. We don't be creative. We don't try to change it. We don't decide we're going to use Coca-Cola and Twinkies. No. This is the Holy Supper. I, I didn't make that up, by the way. There's some crazy people that actually do things like that. It's insane. All in the name of being hip. Whatever. Paul says this, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, verse 23, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Okay, now put your thinking caps on. Stay awake with me for a minute. The Lord's Supper is a simple meal of eating bread that represents our Lord's body and drinking wine that represents the new covenant in our Lord's own blood. And when we partake of it as a body of Christ, we do so, Paul says it right here, in remembrance of him. In other words, it's a powerful means of grace whereby God conveys his power for us to live a righteous, upright, and holy life. Where we're reminded of how much it cost Jesus, listen, to reconcile us to the Father and to one another. It says to us, God has gone to great ends to make you his friend. Great lengths to make you his friend and us brothers and sisters. It's a visible sermon. It preaches. It preaches. As the song puts it, blue is the color of a heart so cold that will not bend when the story's told of the love of God for a sinful race, for the blood that flowed down Jesus' face. That can give us life, that can make us grow, that can keep our hearts from growing cold. When we talks about 
do this in remembrance of me. We remember, not in the sense that we forgot, right? Sometimes it's not what he's saying. He's saying, in other words, we mull it over, right? We're confronted with it. We meditate on it. We call to mind Jesus, and in particular, the giving of his body, his flesh, for our sins, the pouring out of his blood, the sealing of the covenant of grace. Listen to that. Jesus said it, the new covenant in my blood. It's a visual reminder. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, it's a visual reminder that God has kept his promise to forgive our wickedness and remember our sins no more. That's what it says. It speaks, brothers and sisters, it speaks. Paul adds this in verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, it was uh, Francis of Assisi that said, preach the gospel, and if you have to, use words. I hate that, by the way. But I'll tell you, there's the one time I actually say, hey, there's one place where it makes sense. That's at the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper, without words, visualizes for us what? Jesus' death and the giving of himself for his church. It's a visual reminder of the memory verse we had up here earlier. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon who? Him. And it's by his what? His wounds. Or in another version, his stripes. We're healed. I often remind you as a congregation that you should be preaching the gospel to yourself. Everybody remember I've said that a number of times in a number of sermons, so much so that you're probably getting sick of it. Well, I'll tell you what. Every time we have the Lord's Supper, that's exactly what it is. It's a preaching of the gospel to ourselves. Renewing us, refreshing our faith, stoking the flames of an attitude of gratitude, which leads to keeping our spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. We do that, Paul says, until Christ comes again. So in other words, the Lord's Supper is going to last until Jesus places his foot on this earth again. And then, by the way, from another passage, he says... When he said to his disciples on that last supper, I will not drink of this again until I drink of it when? With you in my father's kingdom. <laughs> Don't worry about it. There's going to be plenty of wine flowing on that day. Amen. We're not going to have no little cup of grape juice. I'll tell you that much. This is going to make Italian wine look like cheap grape juice. Just saying. So we are to consider Christ's spiritual body, Christ's words of institution, Thirdly, Christ's body, his physical body. Paul gets into that, of course. And he says this in verse 27. That's where it starts getting real. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick 
and a number of you have fallen asleep. That's the New Testament way of saying dying, that you, many of you have died. Remembrance is a vital part of partaking of the Lord's Supper, but there's something even deeper going on when we have the Lord's Supper by faith. We're actually communing. All right, now it's going to get heavy here. We're actually communing with the physical body and blood of Jesus, who is now, who has ascended, risen, ascended, and is sitting right now at the right hand of the Father. Physically, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And when we partake of this bread and of this cup, we are communing with his physical body. That's pretty heavy. And it's represented by simple bread and the fruit of the vine. And this is what Paul means when he says, If anyone eats of the bread and drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner, he will be guilty of sinning against. Listen, here's the important part. Sinning against, not simply sinning against the Lord, but sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Did you notice that? You're going to be sinning against Christ's body and his blood. In other words, even though the bread doesn't magically transform into Jesus' physical flesh, it does represent it in a very real way. You understand? That's the big debate in church history. Well, what is it? It's still bread, but it represents the real body of Jesus. Don't mistake that for one moment. We have a real communion with a real risen Christ. Let me take you back one chapter. I think it's my only cross-reference this morning. And it's uh, Corinthians 10. We don't have time for the explanation of the whole context. Don't worry. I'm just going to quote a few verses and explain how it relates to what we're talking about. This is what Paul says in Corinthians 10, 16 to 17, when he mentions the Lord's Supper there. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread we break a participation in the blood of the body of Christ? Because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Now, the word translated as participate, when it says we participate in the body, we participate in the blood, is the Greek word, surprise, surprise, koinonia. Same word we talked about last week, which means fellowship. It means to share in, to participate in. And what Paul is saying is that when we partake of the bread and the wine together, we don't only remember the Lord's once and for all sacrifice for our sins, but we actually have fellowship with his body and blood. We have spiritual communion with the body of the risen Lord. Now, I'll tell you this right now so you can relax. No one can explain this fully. Calvin talks about it for this, like for, I don't know, 50 pages or how many pages it institutes. And then he says, it's a mystery. We don't know how to explain it. I'm like, thanks. You made me read 50 pages just to tell me you don't know what it means. No, anyway, but it's true. We can't explain fully what this communion entails, but we know it's real and it's a real communion. But here's the thing that what's very important is we may not understand fully what's happening during communion in terms of our communion. But I'll tell you, it's critically important to understand what it means to partake of this supper unworthily. In other words, this is what we do have to understand. We have to understand what it means 
to partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner because that's what was um, bringing judgment upon these Corinthian believers. So Paul doesn't leave us guessing. First of all, it means to fail to recognize that the bread and wine represent to us the body and blood of Jesus. In other words, that it's no ordinary meal and it's to be taken in faith, hope, and love. In other words, the way that the Corinthians were behaving is they were turning it into just some common meal that really meant nothing. You understand? Whereas what does the meal really mean? It's a very specific meal and it has a very specific purpose of reminding us of Jesus' body and of his blood. And it's a communion with his body and blood and it is not to be taken lightly. And that's why he goes on to say a man ought to examine himself. Not frivolously come in uh, drunkenness and gluttony, but rather come with the right frame of mind and the right attitude, and especially considering your brothers and sisters in the same room. It's important to see that. And so one, one thing that it certainly means for us, Dick Lucas tells the story of one time when a brother was passing out the elements, he noticed there were two uh, believers who were both going to take communion and they were not speaking to one another. <laughs> they weren't on speaking terms and they were going to partake of the Lord's Supper. So instead of giving them the bread, he slipped them a little note. And the note said, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. And the good news is they actually did that. They went outside and they took care of business. And they got right. And so it it certainly means to take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner means making sure that you have short accounts one with another. With the family of God. And it says right here in the text that because they were not examining themselves in this way, uh, notice what happens in verse 29. They were eating and drinking judgment on themselves. Now think about this. Think about this. Lord's Supper is a means of grace to fortify and strengthen and feed our faith and feed our souls, right? They were turning a means of grace, listen to this, into a means of judgment. (laughs) That's insane. The very thing that is supposed to be filling them with the grace of God was filling them with what? God's judgment. Listen, you know, so many people have issues with, oh, don't talk about an angry God. In this case, we see very clearly God was angry. He was angry at the way they were mistreating one another. He took it very personal, especially around the most holy meal. And so this is what God was doing. Verse 30, that's why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. You have to understand, the Corinthians were naming and claiming Christians. Did you know that? And if you read the book of Corinthians, they thought people that were sick, people that were weak, people that were poor, well, they weren't that holy. Because if, if God loved, if you were really connected close to God, you'd be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And so the fact that some of them were becoming weak and sick, and then some of them even dying, that was a serious thing to them. Blow to their pride among other things. And so that's the last thing I want to mention, the last few minutes here, 
is we need to consider, the last thing we need to be considering is Christ's judgment. Paul says if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Paul's saying something really profound and really worth its weight in gold for our walk in Christ here. He's saying this, if we judged our own sin, in other words, if we curbed our own sin and selfishness, if we put our own sin to death, then the Lord won't have to do it. That just makes sense, doesn't it? And also, when we do fall into sin, we need to call it what it is. Sin. And repent of it. And judge it right there and then say, God, I agree with you. This is wicked. And I, I, I have no excuse. It's not my wife's fault. It's not my kid's fault. It's not the church's fault. It's not the cop's fault. It's my fault. And it ain't President Trump's fault. He's got his own faults. Forgive me, O oh Lord, for this great thing, great sin. We judge ourselves so the Lord won't do it. And here's this wonderful word of grace in the middle of this judgment. Even in judging his own people, as severe as he was with the sin of the Corinthians, God only did it as a form of what? Fatherly discipline. He did it so that the Corinthians, whom he loved dearly, as bizarro as they were, he, he sent his son to die for them. He did it so that they wouldn't be what? Judged with the world. And here's what our world needs to be warned of, my brothers and sisters. A judgment is coming. Make no mistake about it. The world will be judged. And when God disciplines us, even as severe as he was in this case, it's in order that we won't have that final judgment. Listen, when we were at... The Boys and Girls Club, we were cooking, uh, um, you know, each different table cooked a different thing. A ju judges walked around and tasted our food. And I looked at our table, and there was a little smiley face, and it says, we have been judged. <laughs> and, and it's funny, because it hit me, and I thought, you know what? I said, it, it kind of looked weird. We have been judged, and then it has a smiley face. Right? You would think we have been judged and have somebody like, but it didn't. <laughs> But the cool thing is, the supper tells us what? We have been judged in Christ Jesus. He took our judgment so that we will not be judged with the rest of the world. And make no mistake of it, that's what we deserve. But we didn't get our dessert, true desserts. Jesus did. That's what this meal is all about. So Paul says, as I come to a close, Paul says we ought to examine ourselves before partaking. The Book of Common Prayer combines both the examination of our personal walk in, with, with Christ and our corporate walk of faith together as God's people when it says this in one sentence. I love it. Nice and simple. Ye that truly and earnestly repent you of your sins and are in love and charity with your neighbors and intend to live a new life, Draw near. Perfect. Because it covers both things. It covers your personal walk with Jesus, that you're keeping short accounts with him, but it also covers that you're walking in faith, hope, and love with your brothers and sisters. And this, this meal, at least monthly, confronts us anew. Are you doing that? You walking by faith, not with imperfection, because that's what the meal is all about. It's for sin. 
for sinners. But are you walking in good faith with God through Jesus? And are you walking in good faith with your, with your neighbor, with your brother and sister in Christ? We'll end with this one. This is a little more wordy, but I think it's uh, powerful. John Calvin, who I mentioned wrote a lot about the Lord's Supper. This is a wonderful thing that he says, and then we'll pray. We come to the table, he says, to offer our vileness and our unworthiness to him, so that his mercy may make us worthy of him. We come to despair in ourselves so that we may be comforted in him. To abase ourselves, that's to humble ourselves, so that we may be lifted up by him. To accuse ourselves so that we may be justified by him. Moreover, we come to aspire to that unity which he commends to us in his supper. And as he makes all of us one in himself, to desire one soul, one heart, one tongue for us all. And all God's people said, Amen. let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this holy and fortifying meal that literally represents the body and the blood of our Lord and Savior who gave himself for us to create a people who are eager to do what is good. And Lord, we long to do what is good. And we fall, fall very short of that. And so we thank you for this means of grace. This renewed reminder of forgiveness. This renewed experience of forgiveness. As our feet are washed anew. So that we can walk with you by faith. With new hearts. So Lord, be with us now as we partake of this supper for those of us who have made a good profession of faith for those who haven't done that yet lord we pray that this is something they would look forward to and aspire to um, as they get right with you maybe for the first time and then join us in your imperfect but holy that is set apart church we pray it in your name jesus amen